Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. On August 22nd, 1776, General William Howe of the British Army landed a large group of soldiers on Long Island with the intent of capturing the port that controlled the Hudson River. He brought his men there. If you do the math, you'll realize that just 47 days earlier, the colonies had declared their independence from England. And in response, England sent 400 ships carrying nearly 32,000 troops that arrived at the very end of July. Anticipating action from England for many months, in April of that same year, General George Washington received approval to raise up nearly 30,000 troops, with the expectation that the first place that England would probably try to capture would be New York. Washington's inclination proved to be correct. And so now, four months later, he began preparing his defense. In doing so, he split the forces, placing General Israel Putnam up in charge of the, the Brooklyn Heights up north. And then he placed Lord Stirling to the southwest in the heights of Guan. And in the south, he placed General John Sullivan with his task to defend the left flank. Nobody seems to know John Sullivan these days. When you mention his name, most people aren't sure who he is. But actually, up until that point, he was fairly accomplished but at this point, in this battle, the Battle of Long Island, or the Battle of Brooklyn as some call it, at this point, he failed to take the threat seriously. And so he didn't take Washington's orders seriously either. Leaving gaps in the defense, he left the troops exposed. And when the British attacked at 11 p.m. on the night of August 27th, they made roads into the defenses of the U.S. troops. And that led into a battle that resulted in 2,500 lives being affected, either by death, by being wounded, or by being captured. 400 of those were British, which means the rest of those were the U.S. troops. With the troops now hemmed in on each side at the Brooklyn Heights, really defeat was inevitable. But then Washington did something that nobody could have expected. And under the cover of darkness, he was able to lead the remaining men in retreat without any further loss of life. And so when the British woke up the next morning, intent on capturing the troops, the ruins that at least remained, they entered into the defense only to find there was nobody there. A month later, British troops would capture New York. And the U.S. would not gain control of New York until 1783. John Sullivan had failed to take the threat of the enemy seriously. And because he failed to take the threat seriously, he also failed to take his orders from George Washington seriously. Now, 250 years later almost, we could stand back and we can look at that scene and perhaps find ourselves very appalled. Today, George Washington is almost a mythical figure in our history books. 
He is looked upon as a man who had great responsibility and great character. And we look at him as not just the first president, but as one of the initial figures who led the U.S. into independence. He seemed to fail to fail when that was seemed to be the only option. So in our eyes, it could be easy to say, well, who does this John Sullivan think that he is? To disregard the orders of somebody who was so capable. But see, while we sit here and we can criticize and we can question a man that we don't know for an event that we weren't part of, we must realize that we do the same thing. The church of today is doing the same exact thing that John Sullivan did then. We fail to take the threats of our lives and our church seriously. And so as a result, we fail to take the directions of our commander, God, seriously as well. We read last week, 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In that one sentence, the Apostle Peter gives a command, and then he gives a reason for the command. But by and large, you'll find that many churches and many Christians fail to heed this call soberly. Though Peter says to be watchful here, Most people are living with their eyes closed. The reason we fail to follow through on the command is because we don't agree with Peter's reason for the command. The reason that we fail to follow through on that command is because we don't believe the reason Peter gives. And you may say, oh, of course I believe what Peter says. But see, if we really believed that Satan really prowled around then we would be vigilant. What I find is we tend to act like horses. We have blinders on and we narrow in on only what we can see. We fail to see the threats that might be over here or over there. Those of you looking at me right now, you in the center section, probably don't realize that you're surrounded by a Brian and Brian, and they can surround you. You got blinders on looking this way. I was really hoping you would sit here because it would have worked so well. <laughs> so I had to adapt. <laughs> Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around. That statement is true. Do you know how we know that statement is true? Do you know how we know that... Our adversary, the devil, prowls around because Satan told us so. Satan himself said it was true. Remember when the Lord God allows Satan to try and to test Job. And do you remember the conversation between God and between Satan? Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So we have all the angels coming to present themselves, and Satan joins in. And then in verse 2, the Lord asks Satan, From where have you come? And how does Satan respond? In verse 2, Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. To put it in Peter's words, he's prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. See, knowing that Satan wanders to and fro on the earth means we have no choice but to be on guard, to be aware, lest we ourselves are taken captive. He had issued a similar warning, or Paul had issued a similar warning to the Ephesian elders. Long ago, Acts 20, and we've read it multiple times when we've been in 1 Timothy, but he tells them, pay a careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, but like General John Sullivan, the Ephesian church failed to heed the warning. They failed to follow the commands. And so now, just as Washington did at Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, Paul and Timothy now have to swoop in and rescue those remaining souls before they too are captured by the enemy. To do that, Timothy is left in Ephesus to lead the church and to restore it as a pillar and buttress of truth. It causes Paul to issue instructions to the church, and he combines those with warnings, which is what we find ourselves looking at in the continuation of our text this morning. So I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. I want to continue this message that I've titled Apostasy is Hypocrisy, First Century Dangers in the 21st Century Church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy, that is, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is a Savior of all people, especially those who believe. You may be seated. The hypocrisy of apostasy is that it is professing godliness while denying its power. Through their rules, they have denied God's goodness. By following the doctrine of demons, they deny God's perfection. 
and by departing the faith, they have denied God's deity. The circumstances described by Paul here more than just concerning. They're really, really troublesome. He calls them hypocrites or insincere. He says their consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods. And concerningly, they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. That's what apostasy looks like here. Unless we get overconfident and think we're immune to it, the apostasy is only a danger in the first century. Remember very quickly the circumstances of apostasy that we discussed last week that I described to you from verse 1a. Paul tells the Ephesians, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. This is not Paul's warning alone. He cites the Holy Spirit as the very source of the information that he receives. And so his source then is reliable. We can trust it to be true. When he says that some will depart in faith in later times or in the last days, as some of your translations say, we take heed to that because it came from the Holy Spirit. Remember that when Paul writes of the last days, he is writing of those days that began when Christ's incarnation occurred. That moment when Christ became flesh, when he set foot on earth for the first time after creating the earth. John, Peter, the author of Hebrews, they all confirm those last days began when Christ came to earth. And though they tell us that that's when those last days began, we don't find an ending date, only that they conclude upon Christ's return. And so, since the Lord has not come back, we can deduce that we still live in these last days ourselves. And so, therefore, what is described in this text is a reality, a very real possibility for any of us. In fact, it's probably much more close than we acknowledge just thinking about the churches that I drove by this morning to get here, and there weren't a lot, but I would say about two-thirds of those, or 60% of those, I would say are apostate. They have nothing to do with the gospel or the word of God. That's no small number, 60%, and that's right in our backyard. This is why it's so critical for us to come to this text and examine it closely the text tells us four aspects of apostasy, but not just so that we can examine the Ephesian church, but so that we can then examine the church of today. Because the problems of the first century church continue to be the problems of the 21st century church. And so we look at the situation here, the situation in Ephesus, and we do so so that we may be on guard so that we can examine ourselves and close up, expose those areas that Satan or his followers may use to cause us to defect from the truth. For those of you who were not here last week, we talked first about the circumstances of apostasy, as I've already mentioned. Writing to Timothy, Paul describes the circumstances, saying that some will depart from the faith. 
That's what it means to apostatize, to turn from something that a person once confessed to be true and now denies it. Paul is simply reiterating a warning that Jesus himself gave before his death, burial, and resurrection. What should scare us, what should raise our alarm is that this danger comes from within. In this case, it's not the threats from outside the church that are most dangerous. It is the threats from inside the church. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 last week, we learn that the stories recounted in Scripture, they're preserved for our instructions. They are given so that we may learn from them. Therefore, we read of the circumstances in Ephesus, not so that we can condemn them. We're not here to say, how could they be so naive? How could they let this happen? Probably a valid question, considering Paul warned them, but that's not why we read. We read so that we can say, how can I not be like them? How can I be on guard? We read this text so that we can guard against it so that it won't happen to us. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new sins. They only take different forms. So instead of Donatism or Pelagianism, we have Darwinism or humanism or environmentalism. But no matter how you slice it, it's still just a different name. But same apostasy. Perhaps the only difference for us is that our technology is significantly more advanced, and so now we're just more sophisticated in our sin. When we read a text like 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, we do so encouraged to take heed, being watchful so that we don't find the same circumstances for us. A failure to take heed to the warnings here will leave us and our church exposed, much like John Sullivan left the troops exposed. We may be guarded out here or out in the world or, or physically, but we leave our, ourselves exposed over here or over here. And we're leaving room for Satan to come in and defeat us. When writing to Timothy, Paul doesn't just describe what has taken place, but he actually explains here how it happened. He says, not just in later times some will depart the faith, but then he says, they did so by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is the cause of apostasy. The cause of apostasy. According to these verses, we find that deception involves three different groups of people, three different groups of individuals. First, we have the victims, those who seem to lack discernment, and so they fall victim to the deceptive teachings. But second... It comes from a demonic source. It is the result of Satan and his followers. But Satan and his followers accomplish their work through that third group of individuals, human agents. So apostasy is demonic force, but advanced through human work. That's what happens to Judas. At the Passover described by John in chapter 13 of his gospel, 
It says that the devil has already been put into Jesus' heart, or already put into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And then we have this scene in verse 21, beginning of verse 21. It says this, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread, whom I have dipped it, when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then we have these words in verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, entered Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are doing, or going to do, do quickly. How does someone who has spent so much time with Jesus get to this point? It's a common question. Paul actually tells us in our passage of study, They have seared their conscience. This is why conscience alone is not a guide. It must always be kept in check. Like the rest of our being, our conscience is subject to the effects of sin. 1 Corinthians tells us that the conscience can be made weak through immaturity. And in the same passage, it says it can be wounded through wrong. And then Titus tells us that our consciences can be defiled by sin. So here it is seared in 1 Timothy 4.2, meaning that it has been cauterized in our English language. Something that has been cauterized often has been burned or seared, and it no longer has any feeling in it. It cannot feel pain. It cannot feel joy. It feels nothing. So how does a person sear their conscience? It comes from minimizing sin and minimizing repentance. See, when we minimize sin, we fail to see it as serious, or at least as serious as it really is. We excuse it. We justify it. We begin to think it's really not that big of a deal. And in doing so, what we've done is seared our conscience and we start to become unfeeling towards sin. So it has no effect on us. And then in the same way, by minimizing repentance, we think less about the consequences of sin. And so we're not forced to actually deal with it and deal with how serious it is. Just as an example, if we get angry, we just say, well, that's just how I am. We've justified ourselves. We've minimized that sin. We've become unfeeling towards it. But if we have to come back and actually repent using God's words, not our words, but God's words, and say exactly what that sin is, and acknowledge that we've hurt someone, and acknowledge that it is an offense against God, then it becomes serious. Then we start to see how serious sin really is and how disgraceful it is. And we'll tell you, we do this a lot. Well, I'm just a sinner. And we blow it off. 
Yeah, we are sinners, but what is your sin? What do you need to repent of? A seared conscience makes one unfeeling towards sin. And then what happens, what we see in this text, is it frees that person to then become a slave of the Lord's enemies. That is what is happening in our text. This apostasy is orchestrated by demons. But the person's conscience is so seared, they don't even know they are being used by demons to propagate that apostasy or that they themselves are apostate. I want you to see something important here because this reminds us of something critical. Our battle is not against what? That's a, that's a question. I will not move forward until you guys answer that. Flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I'll read it in its entirety. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we tend to focus on the physical to the neglect of the spiritual. Everything is physical today. Nothing is spiritual. This is actually a point in which I think the church is being heavily influenced by the world and we don't even realize it. It's an area actually where we've exposed ourselves to the enemy. And I could spend hours talking on this point. That's part of what we do on Wednesdays. We make everything about the physical and ignore the spiritual. We say things like, well, it's genetic. Or, or to use this common phrase now, I have a chemical imbalance. There are issues that we must contend with. There are physical issues that we must contend with. But we have to remember, why do we have physical issues? It's not because I was playing too hard and broke my bone. It's not because I'm getting older and degenerating. It's because originally sin. It begins, the physical begins with a spiritual problem. See, we have to remember man is made up of both body and soul. You can't divide those two. And so think about this. What happens when everything is physical? You actually leave people without hope. If all we have are physical issues only, then it's not redeemable. There's no rescue from that because you have no control over that. And use an example of a chemical imbalance, which I, I use that because it's never been scientifically proven. In fact, there's research that came out about a year and a half ago from England that shows that we have no evidence here. But when you say it's a chemical imbalance, what happens? Two things. First, then people aren't held responsible for their own sin. So when the Bible says, don't be anxious, and that person's anxious, they can just respond, well, I have an imbalance. I can't control it. Again, it's not redeemable. You can't bring it before the Lord then. But look at what that does. There's no hope then. They just have to live with anxiety the rest of their lives. What a depressing thing. If the Bible says, do not be anxious, then I have to believe that there is a way to conquer that because I don't think the Lord in his goodness would give me a command that I couldn't do. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that he won't give us any temptation beyond what we can handle. So we have to remember our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual. I say that because that's actually what we see in the text. Look at what it says. There are these physical human beings, so we have physical, but it tells us that battle is spiritual. It's not against those physical beings. It's against the spiritual demons. I think that's why Jesus could eat with and, and wash the feet of Judas in John 13. Because his battle, he recognized, was not against Judas. As awful as that was, and, and Judas should have repented, and he's responsible, Jesus' battle was with Satan because it was Satan who implanted that desire. And so we have to recognize that the battles we're engaged in are spiritual as well. When we're focused only on the physical, we're, we're looking out here, but we're leaving this part unguarded. We're leaving our heart unguarded. How do we know if we're in this danger? I think by looking at our prayer life. If our prayers are more physical than spiritual, then we've probably ignored the spiritual battle and we've opened the door to an attack. And so it's important that we look at the cause of apostasy here. And by understanding this cause, it's a reminder that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so we need to be on guard against the spiritual attacks even more. In writing to Timothy, Paul has described the circumstances and the cause of apostasy, but I want you to note third, the character of apostasy. The character of apostasy. Verse 3, it says this, They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So the false teachers are leading people into apostasy. And here we're told specifically what that looks like, that they're forbidding marriage and they're forbidding foods. And that word for food just means solid food. It's not saying meat specifically, and it's not liquids. It's, it's meaning just food in general. Writing at the second end, second end of the second century, Irenaeus describes kind of what's going on in his time frame. He tells of how certain followers of Saturnius declares that marriage and generations are from Satan. He says, many likewise, they abstain from food and draw away multitudes by a feigned temperance of this kind. He says, this kind of thing came to a head in the monks and the hermits of the fourth century. They went away and, and lived in the Egyptian desert. And then they cut themselves off completely. They spent their lives mortifying the flesh. Never ate cooked food. They, they didn't get married. They were famous for their fleshlessness. There's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, but of a monk who was struggling in the world and struggling specifically with lust. And so to overcome that, he took himself to a cave. And in that cave, cutting himself off from the world, he started getting aggravated because he found himself still struggling with lust. It's because he failed to see the battle's not physical. He forgot his worst enemy is actually himself. He's a sinner. 
That's what Irenaeus and some of those others are describing. People are cutting themselves off, but they ignore that. The problem at hand here is that the false teachers have taken something that God has created good, but they denied its goodness by preventing people from partaking in it. So, the people here actually consider marriage and food evil. That's why they're not partaking. But God explains in his word that both of those are good. At creation, marriage is a means to accomplish God's, God's will, God's plan, to be fruitful and to multiply. It's therefore good. Paul himself defends marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then we have the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 13, verse 4, who describes marriage this way. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Romans 14 talks about food. And in it, Paul declares that food is good. You have to realize that this is a time when some considered self-denial as a way to self-righteousness. This is a movement called aestheticism. It was thought that if you abstain and deny yourself certain privileges, that would make you holier than someone else. Again, the issue at hand is the Ephesian deceivers. They're not recognizing something from God as good, even though it came from a good God. We're not talking about abstaining from something of the world which may influence us with evil. The false teachers are denying people access to the gifts of the Lord, the gifts that he has given the people and meant for their good. And so by denying these, they're actually showing they're ungrateful for God's gifts. They fail to properly see God's goodness and God's gifts. They make light of them by denying participation in them. And something should start to click here. We should start to see this is how perspective matters. In this case, the false teachers, they, they've succumbed to that aestheticism and its principles. But see, by thinking this way, they have distorted God's gifts and they have misconstrued God's character. This is why we always need to think through what we're saying and what we believe. Everything says something about God, and we have to think about what our belief actually says about God. So everything you say, everything you do, it makes a statement about God. It makes a statement about what you believe about God. And if we're not thoughtful and don't think about the implications of what we say, do, or believe we expose ourselves to the possibility of apostasy. Never mind the fact that we often damage the testimony for God. And so the character of apostasy described here, it's important because it causes us, again, to examine the implications of our own beliefs. I think we're more influenced by the world than we realize. But there is hope in our text. Paul gives a fairly severe picture of apostasy and where it leads, but he doesn't leave it there. He gives correction, and that's what I want you to know for, the correction of apostasy. Verses 4 and 5. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so while the character of apostasy is to deny God's goodness and what he has created, the correction is to recapture God's goodness. And Paul gives two ways to do that. First is by the word of God. And that inclusion of the word of God seems a little odd because we're not sure how that fits. But when Paul uses that phrase, word of God, he's often referring to the message of salvation. So the idea is that upon salvation, our desires change from pleasing self to wanting to please God. And so our goal in not wanting to misuse marriage and not wanting to misuse food is we would look and see how it glorifies God rather than glorifies man. But we can't deny that the word of God reveals God's will and purposes. Within it, the Lord teaches us the rightful way and the rightful uses of both food and marriage. And so as long as a person is using something in accordance with the word, then we can be assured it is sanctified, it is made holy. But it has to mean we know the word. And then he says it's also sanctified by prayer. It's made holy by prayer. And quickly, there are three aspects of prayer to consider. First, prayer simply just fulfills verse 4, which says in thanksgiving. Because through prayer, we can express our thanksgiving. We'll actually see that at the Lord's Supper when we celebrate that here shortly in 1 Corinthians 11, that there is thanksgiving to God for food. But second, through prayer, one can request of God, Lord, please help me that I don't misuse these. And finally, prayer is just an attitude of humility. The one who prays shows his desire to submit to God's will and will therefore seek to use God's gifts, such as marriage and food, in a holy, God-honoring manner. Notice, though, that this is not a catch-all to make anything holy. Verse 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That is not a means, then, for us to take something like Sunday football or Friday fishing. It's not a means to elevate my personal comfort and try to make it holy by praying to God. We don't have the magic ability to take something we like and just say it's holy because I prayed to God to make it holy. At a most extreme example, if you think of a man in adultery, he cannot go before and pray and thus say God sanctified this. That's ludicrous. But what we see here is only those things that have been created good according to God are made holy. And so as we read 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I hope that we will look at it seriously and soberly, compelled to put up a guard so that we don't fall to apostasy ourselves. And with great concern for what may happen, we should ask, how do we guard against apostasy? Apostasy By following the correction, by submitting and engaging with God through his word and through prayer. One thing that is consistent in every generation is the hatred of God. From the first century to the 21st century, there is always those groups, those people who hate the Lord, and they will always seek to suppress his truth. 
So what we see happening in Ephesus continues today. Apostasy continues to be a threat, not from outside, but from within. And as shown, this, this is a work of Satan. A work in which he is trying to subvert God, and subvert God's work, and to subvert God's word, and ultimately subvert God's worth. In our time today, he does this mostly by convincing us that we can live in worldliness and expect godliness. He's convinced people that they can adopt the wisdom of the world and still walk in the wisdom of God. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against spirit and ideology. And so we have to guard ourselves and guard ourselves on all fronts. So focused on the physical front, we've left ourselves exposed in the spiritual front. We're like General John Sullivan in the Battle of Long Island, who overlooked the full front, the full attack, and he failed to secure every point. That failure is leaving the church to crumble from within, from inside. And so when we read of the Ephesian church, let us take heed, recognizing that we are like them. We are susceptible to the very same sins. So we put up our armor of God. We close up all fronts and engage in our battle for truth. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for what you do, Lord. Father, help us to see that our battle is not against one another. Our battle is not against people out there. Our battle, Lord, is against the Satan and his demons. Our battle is not flesh and blood. It is spirit. And so, Father, cause us to seek you out through your word and through prayer, Lord. Let us gird up and be ready by engaging with you. Let us be prepared to defend your truth and your honor according to your will, Lord. Father, we're thankful that you have given us a way to do just that, Lord, that you have not left us to be defenseless and left us on our own, but Lord, you have given us your spirit, you have given us your word, and you've given us one another. And so, Lord, may we live out that truth. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.